0: Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Flip Your Lid. I got to tell y'all, I'm fangirling. I have with me John Lee, and I'm not exaggerating at all. He's been the most influential person in my life about therapy. As a person, how therapy has affected me, but also as being a therapist and a trauma recovery consultant, John has shaped my idea of self and helped me to help other people learn who they actually are and get the conditions off of them that so many of our childhoods place on us. So John has been on Oprah numerous times. He's been on 2020, The View, CNN, I go on and on. He's author of many books. The best-selling book, "The Flying Boy," the book that shaped me was his book called "Growing Yourself Back Up" about emotional aggression. So, John, I love you so much, and welcome to my podcast.
0: God, thank you so much, Kim. Yeah. That's, let's let's quit now. Right, <laughs> <laughs> that's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs> thank you so yeah. much for saying that. I- yeah didn't really know that.
1: Oh, it's true. When I entered into the world of peer, and so you all know, Pierre is a type of therapy that Dan Jones, exceptional man, and, and John Lee developed together. When I entered that, I had been sober for nine or ten years, but was not emotionally sober and was struggling pretty deeply with the eating disorder and ended up with one of his prodigies, sidekicks with Connie Burns, and she taught me about peer and my... Life changed, truly, truly changed so much that I changed the name of my private practice to peer in um, centers, peer in psychotherapy center, because it is about uh, what peer is. So, John, before I ask you the the guaranteed question that you all know I'm going to ask, but you tell everybody what peer stands for.
0: It's an acronym, Kim, for primary emotional energy recovery.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: Uh, And. Dan and I did that for 28 years. Wow. Uh, Several cities, a couple of different countries. Yeah. Um, And I retired that maybe six years ago, Mm -hmm. but it really became uh, after Dan passed away, I kept doing, I kept leading them for maybe three or four years. Right. But as I was aging and it was a, Really a team thing. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, after 28 years, I just can't get in the floor and get on anybody's back. <laughs> right,
1: right right. And that's so so different and changed things for me. and And after I had experience with Connie Burns learning about peer therapy and I you know read you know growing yourself back up and was getting into your work, well, I called you because mm-hmm. I just wanted to leave a message on your voicemail saying thank you. That's all I wanted to do. And John, you answered the phone.
2: Because
0: <laughs> that's what I do.
1: <laughs> right. But I was like, John, I remember saying that, like, John, you've been on Uber like three times. I don't even answer my phone. I'm a peon. Like, why are you answering your phone? And uh, our our friendship started there and I'm yeah. so grateful for you. So Oh,
2: thank
1: you. Yeah, I am where I am and you're a huge, huge part of that.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Dawn. I'm glad it meant that to you. It does.
1: So let me ask you the first question, only guaranteed question on this podcast, and that is, tell me what has flipped your lid and what measures have you had to take to reconnect to your true self?
0: Well, there's about a thousand things that have flipped my lid. Let's see. What was the main one? Main one, the main one. Mm. a beautiful woman left me and when i asked her why she was leaving she said because i was the angriest man she'd ever know wow now at that time i was teaching in religious studies department and uh, in the english department at ut and uh, acc and so i didn't know what she meant by that mm-hmm. Um, and I said the dumbest thing in the world, but it was also true. I said, you know, I've never hit you, slapped you, pushed you, or shoved you. Mm-hmm. And to me, that would that's what I grew up with. Right. So that's what I thought real anger was. Mm-hmm. Um, now it turns out that what she really meant, or, or could have meant, is you're full of rage. Right. And you don't know it. And it comes out in all these underground various ways, shaming, blaming, demeaning, demoralizing, criticizing. Mm-hmm. Those were the things she was talking about. Right. And then I said, is there any other reason? And she said, yep. You're also the saddest man I've ever known. Wow. And I'm going, is that true? And and I knew it was. Right. And I'd been in Jungian therapy, Freudian therapy, but after she departed, that's when I went to be with Dan Jones. Mm. And he was my therapist for maybe six months before we became Co-founders of the Men's Center in Austin
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the peer training program. Right. Yeah. So it was pain and and, and confusion and a sorrow uh, that clipped my lid. Yeah. And then from there, I wrote The Flying Boy. Me and Robert Bly became friends and colleagues. And so I had to do a tremendous amount of, of emotional work, reconnecting with my body, reconnecting with emotions I didn't even know how to name, let alone feel.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and that that began the trajectory that started
1: thirty eight years ago. Oh yeah. My God. So old. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? You,
2: yeah. Years
1: ago. Yeah. Talk about if you can a little bit the techniques like that Dan did that were different that actually allowed you to learn that the emotions were trapped in your body and had to successfully release them.
0: Well, one of, one of the memories I have is that I told Dan in therapy that what she said is, yeah. and we started with the anger. Yeah. Um and so he kept trying to engage me in the way that both of us thought for those mm-hmm. 20 but I would have none of it. I was still in my head. Mm-hmm. I I, you know, I said, Dan, all I want is for you to tell me how to get her back.
1: Right. Bottom line. Bottom line, and right? There,
0: yeah. Uh, you know, if you can do that. Right. I'll, I'll sit with you. And uh, almost the second session for about eight sessions when I would start telling about my childhood or the physical abuse that I received from my father, mm. the emotional incest from my mom, he would ha- like, he would hand me a pillow and say, you know, why don't you scream into it? Stop hitting me. Don't hit me anymore mm. or t- take this stack of pillows and pound. <laughs> I'd go, Hey, no way.
1: Right, Uh -uh. right. right. Uh -uh. And Mm. so,
0: finally, on the I think it was the ninth or tenth session, he handed me a pillow again, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and I tapped it. (laughs) Right there. Are you satisfied? Is that good enough now? Right.
1: Is that good enough? Yeah.
0: And then the next session, he handed me the pillow, and I pounded that thing Mm. and loved it. Wow. Sobbed and screamed and yelled out pain that had been inside me for thirty years, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: off to the races.
1: Yeah, and and that became a daily practice, some type of anger release.
0: Yeah, yeah, Correct. I did that every day, uh, and then also got in touch with my grief. So mm-hmm. for nine months to a year, it, it was an everyday process. Right, right, um, and then. I got into some other body-centered therapy, bioenergetics,
2: uh-huh.
0: uh, uh, gestalt back then, uh-huh. anything that keep I, I did a lot of body work,
2: mm-hmm.
0: anything that could possibly keep me out of my head.
2: Yeah.
1: And you, you you stated about emotional incest, and even a lot of people in this field aren't familiar with the term. If I remember correctly, Patricia Love coined the term, and I know you're friends with her. Yeah. Can you tell our audience a lot of people have never heard of emotional incest?
0: Well, you know, most people haven't, uh, yeah. even therapists and clinicians. Right. Um, another term for it, though, it's, it's, it's just as hard to hear, is psychosexual incest.
1: Mm, I've not heard of that. That's interesting.
0: Where, where the parent, in my case, the mother, was... Putting energy into my little boy body, and later adolescent, later mm. young man, mm. he was also taking energy out of yeah. to feed her uh, sad life and right. painful life. Mm. And so, when I'd go, when I first started going to adult children of alcoholics, when I would hear somebody talk about actual incest uh, or molestation, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to come out in my skin because. Mm. This was hitting such a nerve, but I really, really believed that I hadn't been. Right. And so my mom was in recovery going to Al-Anon at this time. And so I confronted her and said, tell me. I can deal with it. I can mm. heal it. Just mm. tell me. And she said, I would tell you if that was so. Well, a month or two later, I picked up Pat Love's book, The Emotional Incest Syndrome, Mm. And i understood why i was so upset in those meetings
1: yeah because the symptoms are the same for physical incest and emotional incest yeah
0: yeah see the peer training program and my work has always been about bottom line about energy yeah repressing it and expressing it appropriately mm-hmm. and so the the emotional incest is is really a On an energetic level. Right. Uh, Now, it it would get physical. Like, I'd have to give my mother uh, massages for her migraines. Mm. I'd massage her feet. All this stuff that wasn't, uh, nobody thought at the time that would have been sexual. Right. Um, But it it was an energy drain, an energy exchange with the little boy. Mm. This happened. I remember, Kim, one time uh, I was teaching in Seattle and this woman, I I was teaching on this subject. And this woman said, uh, after I took a pause, she said, um, my husband um, died in in, uh, battle, in war, uh, a few years ago, but before he passed, we had a kid. And so she said, sometimes I would miss him so much that I go crawl in bed with my little boy
2: mm.
0: and ask him to hold me. Yeah, and and she said, I'm guessing from this talk that I shouldn't have done that. I said, No, you should have found an adult, right, to to comfort and mm-hmm. care for you, and then you care for your little boy who's yeah. fatherless. You know,
2: right.
0: And and she got it
2: immediately. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of your many gifts, John, is that you can really help people to feel safe in that vulnerability, to admit something that uh, has such a depth as what you just said, and to know your background and the work you had to do to become a safe space for others. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of work.
0: And I wasn't, you know, I just didn't know it. I thought, well, I teach religious studies. I teach literature. I recite poetry to my students. I mean, I'm a catch.
1: Right, of course, right?
0: <laughs> For a redneck from Alabama? Right. Teaches poetry? You yeah. Know, but I, I would describe myself many times back then as a head on a stick. Mm. Then from with mm. my neck down, couldn't yeah. feel a thing.
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, and the process of learning to connect Physically, without it becoming a threat,
2: right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And what what do you think transpired? That, like, how did you know that you were at a place that you can now teach what you had absorbed through Dan's therapeutic teachings and practices with well, you?
0: Well, you know, because I taught for ten years at Alabama, UT, and and ACC, I knew that my calling was to be a teacher. I first thought I was going to seminary and was going to be a minister, right? Um, but by the time I got my undergraduate degree, I, I was convinced that I wanted to broaden uh, my studies and my interests, and mm-hmm. and um, and and so you know, I applied to teach uh, take a graduate. course course my master's at the University of Toronto.
2: Mm. And
0: I didn't get in. And so I went to Alabama and there I got my master's in religious studies and American literature. Right. Um and so and so I forgot the question.
1: (laughs) Just how did it what was the bridge? How did it go from you and Dan working together and then co leading all of this and creating a whole movement for people like me to at some point step into?
0: Well, I realized after about the eighth or ninth year teaching college that I just couldn't see myself doing this for 30 years, teaching the same courses over and over yeah. and over again. Yeah. And by this time, I'd been studying psychology thoroughly and philosophy and stuff and and so the first real bridge really was dan and my work and then one day i said to dan you know uh, there's only one uh men's center in the united states wow i want to create the second one. Wow, that's true i asked him to be chairman of the board and i was the director and we had all these therapists who who worked out of those offices had 12-step meetings. And again, the 12-step the stuff of adult children of alcoholics and uh, Codependence Anonymous, mm-hmm. non AA, which I participated in all of them, given the addict mm-hmm. I am. And um, so the center took off. And then the flying boy, because of Oprah to a large degree, and Robert Bly and John Bradshaw, mm-hmm. they all supported it, you know, and and that's what really launched me. And so little by little, I let I was teaching five courses. next semester, I dropped down to four. The next semester, I dropped down to three. Yeah. And then I thought, okay, I'm leaving college teaching behind.
1: Yeah. yeah. And to so, a teacher. Because right, I know you've taught me so much and, and I just want to throw some things at you if you want to elaborate on a, a things you've said to me or said when I was in a peer training with you that are life breathing because it's allowed me to disconnect from lies and connect to essence. And so it's things, this is a one that really changed me. You said unsolicited criticism is a form of rage, Listening to it is self-right.
0: Yeah, see, when Laurel left and I started looking at this, I came up with this list by looking at my behavior. Mm. And I identified nine things that I did and people do today when they think they're telling somebody about their feelings of anger mm. and the list that I came up with many, many, many years ago and taught in peer was the following, shaming, blaming, demeaning, demoralizing, criticizing,
2: mm.
0: preaching, teaching, judging, and analyzing. Right. And, all of those was what I was doing in my relationships, thinking I'm just telling you how I feel. Right, right. And criticism, which was my dad's forte, and hated it so much. And, and you know, when she went home with me one time to visit my family, we left and she said... Um, John, your dad criticizes everything that comes out of your mouth. I said, yeah, I know. She said, now I know where you got it. Oh. I said, got what? Right, right. You you criticize everything I say. I can't mm. do it well enough. Can't do it. Yeah. You know, I go, no, no, you got it. You're mistaken. That's not me. That's my dad. Right. But, but unsolicited mm-hmm. criticism.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, solicited criticism Totally healthy, right, Kim? Um, are you really gonna wear that dress out tonight? Mm-hmm.
1: That is unsolicited.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Damn. yeah, right in the gut for the yeah. heart,
2: right?
0: Uh, I say, uh, Kim, is does this shirt look okay for where we're going tonight?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So yes, yeah, right. I'm open, Tell right? I'm Absolutely. Open. I'm open. I want yeah. look good. Yeah. And the freedom of you teaching that to me, that when people would come up and say, looks like you've gained a few pounds, Kim, that I had a right to tell them that was their fear-based thought, and it was unsolicited. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, I would absorb it, because I was such an emotionally regressed state, just like most women are when they're ashamed for how they look, or most people in general, really, are ashamed for how they look, that I couldn't have a voice. And that you taught me that part of being an adult meant that I would have choices and that I could choose to have a voice and choose what was said to me and choose how I responded to it. Now that, I don't always do it well to this day, but just someone saying that so clearly to me, that is a path to freedom.
0: Yeah, I think it in, in my first book on anger, facing the fire, there's a chapter that is called saying no to criticism.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And uh, it It really confused a lot of people, therapists and lay people, Uh, you know. And I'd say, listen, you know, um, this is really hurtful and painful. And when I first started lecturing on circuit, I was so new. I mean, I've been teaching college, but this was a different thing. Somebody would come up to me after a lecture and and say, or a workshop, and say, "Boy." That was one of the best talks, best workshops I've ever attended. But, you know, you never talked about uh, it. And I just take uh, that. Away. Right, right. I wouldn't take him, what they said before. Right, of course. Once they said that but and launched that criticism, mm-hmm. that's what I took away from.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Finally, I just started looking at it and going, people will say things like, well, now I'm just telling you this because I love you remember somebody telling me that when I was writing a book. I said, wow, could you love me some other way? Right. <laughs> this <laughs> is great. very painful. Yeah. i was telling you this for your own right. good. Right, right, yeah. I go, wow, this is what we learn to do. Right. I remember, Tim, I was teaching those nine things uh, to the Tennessee Association of Psychologists. And uh, one guy uh, was taking a note back and he raised his hand and he said, so, uh, Mr. Lee, what's your source? Where did you get these nine things? And in my best Alabama fun drawl, I said, right here. <laughs> right here. <laughs> he thought I'd gotten it out of a book, you know, or yeah. a research paper. Sure,
1: <laughs> sure. It's true life experience.
0: Yeah. And so then I came up with a few more. hmm um, sabotage, manipulation, mm. control, um, uh, making somebody a butt of a joke where everybody's laughing except the one. Uh, right. Those kinds of things. Yeah. And and really, all these things were just part of our culture. Yeah. And yeah. I, just, I just said, you know, no,
2: mm-hmm.
0: no, no. Yeah, I will not be criticized by you today. Yeah. nor will I criticize anything you say or do
1: mm. unless you ask me. Right. Feedback. Right. It's such a normalized trauma that we absorb it and don't question it. Right. And it's why your work is so vital. Now, thank you. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I know you've done a lot of work with codependency as well. Uh-huh. And and I'm now just to let you know working on rewriting the 12 steps towards codependency differently to take the shame uh-huh. out, to take out that is different for codependents as they work through um, uh-huh. with what they're doing. The one thing you said that's helped me tremendously with, with codependency is you said, I can't help you if it hurts me. Right.
0: Codependent, us codependent people... Are always confusing caretaking for caring for. Right. And I made this distinction out of my own experience with my own codependency, but also watching my mothers and other people around hmm. me. So the distinction is uh, caretaking, I'm going to be tired, I'm going to be drained. Yeah. And ultimately, I may even be resentful. Yes. And ultimately, ultimately, the person who I'm caretaking may be angry at me. Right. Caring for comes out of love, compassion, consideration, Mm -hmm. empathy, Mm -hmm. and it actually gives you energy. And nobody's angry.
1: Right. Yeah. That's so powerful.
0: Sure, have those mixed up.
1: Absolutely. And and even the word consideration, to understand, it means I'm going to consider me and you. Mm-hmm. If I'm just making about your need, then a lot of times I do it to cover my own shame, to cover my own pain. And it's a yep. it's a it is a trauma response. Yep. And we need to hear, especially people who are in the church, that you are allowed and need to consider yourself. Yeah. 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 Vital.
0: Yeah, this this idea of self care,
1: Joe wasn't taught in my house. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And, and going back to your nine initial words that were so gave you clarity and life giving, you know, the whole idea of of the preaching and how that's helped me understand that there's so many churches where the preaching style is everything you just described. It's, it's shaming, it's blaming, it's using the very things that Christ came here to take away from us right. to control and to manipulate.
0: Yep, yep. Yeah, That that I drew on my background of, of that um, growing up in the Christian church and, again, was going to go to seminary. And, uh, you know, I, I reflect and I think I would sit in church and ha- just be shamed. hmm uh, demoralized, yeah. Criticized, and I thought, no, that's not. That's yeah. not preaching. That's indoctrination.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That that's uh, damning. That's mm-hmm. uh,
1: hurtful. Mm-hmm. And
0: yet, that's what I grew up with.
1: Yeah, and people are still in it, and so, it's so again, so it's, it's just normalized trauma that we experience it so much that we think it's the way. Right. Yeah, right. absolutely.
0: Well, see, we, you know, in my case, coming into a Baptist church, uh, you know, you, you, we got the idea that we were uh, full of shame right from the get go.
1: Yes,
0: you're born into sin, you know. And I go, you know, what did that little baby do? That <laughs> was so sinful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, stuff like that.
1: But yeah, I, I think you're, I mean, again, you know, you're ahead of your time. I mean, people are just now starting to consider the idea or relook, reexamine, deconstruct the idea of original sin and the idea of a baby already being born. That, you know, you've been pondering that and looking at it differently. And I think it's new for a lot of us because it's so comfortable. We're shamed so much that we go somewhere, especially those who have a history of trauma. If you go into a church and this is now, again, your opportunity to get someone of authority to approve of you,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the shame is so familiar that we stay and think it's think it's an opportunity to serve and to be told we're good enough.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, my girlfriend is a um, ecumenical Christian minister
2: mm-hmm.
0: and psychotherapist, and mm-hmm. She doesn't belong to a church, but she's an ordained minister, you know, a real ordained minister and a master's in uh, counseling psychology. And so she formed a board that was nonprofit. And the primary, um, some of her primary work was working with LGBTQ people. (laughs) And and people way below the poverty line. Mm. She worked with other people that were wealthy who funded that. Mm. But you know, it was like, now this is what I understand Christianity to be. Yeah. Amen. No. Yeah. And uh, but that's not the kind that I grew up with.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad there's some some change within that, and even. is coming, but even in that, that goes to the title of your new book, which I think you named after me, Odd One Out. <laughs> I think some of us resonate, especially those of us who are spending time in a 12 step program. You know, there's a commonality of growing up feeling so different and feeling like the odd one out. And, and so I just have not, you know, I haven't been able to devour this book yet, but I will. But just looking through the contents, John, and, and just would love to. Throw so a few of them out. So if y'all want to go on Amazon and grab this book, it's already available. And there are topics in here like, are we afraid or anxious? Uh-huh. You know, designating the problem. Let's get rid of it. Closure, a made up relationship term. Uh-huh. The illusion and reality of abandonment. Why we can't be rejected. So I won't go any further. There are so many just heart catching titles because it is about <laughs> looking at things differently. So out of those about are we afraid, why we can't be rejected, or about the abandonment, can you grab hold of one of those to start off with and, and kind of help us you understand know, I'll, your I'll thinking? I'll give
0: you a thumbnail sketch of a couple of them. We right. won't go into depth, but just a quote. A, one of the things that I've been doing, and I do not know because I, I, I just... Uh, mangle the English language, being from the South and Southern Appalachia. But one of the things that I built a career on is, first of all, I've always felt the odd one out, Mm -hmm. certainly in my family, um, in my school, you know, and and then having counseled people for 35 years and going to 12-step meetings, I realized, oh my God, nearly everybody (laughs) feels they're the black sheep or the odd one out, or they're on the outside looking in. And but one of the things that made that I devoted a big chunk of my career to is looking at words that therapists, educated people and lay people would use interchangeably as if they meant the same thing. Hmm. And my first big ones that I wrote about and taught about was the difference between anger and rage. Right. Um, that there's a clear demarcation between these two, but none of the anger books that was out mm-hmm. made that distinction. And right. when I make it to clinicians, they go, oh my God, this is so clear that these two states are right. different. So that was my first one. And the second one was the uh, delineation between um, uh, grieving and self-pity. Mm. So I wanted to make those clear distinctions. Mm-hmm. And I just kept doing that and doing that. And, and I put a bunch of those in this book. Right. Um, and um, one of them was the differences between fear and anxiety. And I studied and I researched and read and thought about it and came up with the sense that fear is about the, the, the known. I'm afraid to fly. I'm afraid to go out of the house, I, you know. And fear has an object, mm. it's an object. And if you deal with that object, if you're afraid of dogs, then you don't go to the dog park. Right. But anxiety is this sense of I don't know what's coming. Mm. Yeah. If anything is coming. Right. When is something a lover or a job gonna come? Mm. When am mm. I gonna die? Well, what I realize is they don't. Have, uh, anxiety doesn't have a ob- object to pin it to. Right. And so I, I wanted to make that clear in that little essay that uh, are you afraid? Well, if you are, let's treat fear. But if you're anxious, let's treat that very differently than we will fear. Mm. Is it, fear has it, a psychological, uh, emotional remedy. Yeah. Anxiety and and. I say this sparingly, depending on what group I'm speaking to.
2: Mm.
0: Anxiety's remedy is a spiritual remedy,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, you know. And I quote several theologians and teachers saying, you know, how to how to treat anxiety. Um, Thomas Merton, the Catholic monk mystic, says uh, anxiety is a um, a spiritual lacking, mm. um, and must be treated that way, you know. And Paul Tillich says uh, the way to treat anxiety is to know that we are accepted. Mm, that's good. That's yeah.
1: good. Yeah.
0: And then one of one of my things was about closure. I, I looked at that. And I realized that everybody was saying, oh, I want to get closure on this relationship or I want to get closure on this divorce or I want to get closure on this move that I'm about to make. And I realized something in listening to all that over the years. I thought, closure. So I did a bunch of research and what I found is that it was a pretty much a new age psychological term that didn't exist before the 1940s. Wow. And wasn't spoken of in the 1950s at all. And then in the 60s and 70s, the idea of closure sort of came out. And so everybody was looking for it. And, um, and I said, you know, uh, uh, in the books of John Steinbeck, the Jode family doesn't get closure, you know, they just go to work. Right. And and what I really try to point out in the essay, Kim, is that there's just no such thing. Hmm. And and how I got there hmm. too was based and found and founded in love. People would say, uh, well I want closure around this marriage. And what they really meant is I want to be done. Right. I don't want to feel anything. Yeah, I
1: want, I want to feel better.
0: I want to feel better. And I go, then then you're looking for something that doesn't exist if you really loved each other. Mm. Because one of my, of course, you know, one of my favorite teachers, friends, and poets, Robert Bly, mm-hmm. he had a line, and this is where closure kind of came out of. He said, the people we love, we will always love.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's good.
0: That's good. And so to try to find closure around love was kind of ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to seek closure for my high school sweetheart that I love. Right. You know, Mm. I I still love her. Right. And people, you know, be divorced and go, oh, I finally got closure but then ten years later, I had all these dreams about her.
1: Wow, it's powerful. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right, it's, it's an onion. It's a right. process.
1: Yeah, and it's a different lens to help people look at and say instead of looking for closure, is it more they're looking for self? Is it more they're looking yeah. to reconnect to self without yeah. that person?
0: Yeah, yeah. That yeah. great, wonderfully said. Yep. Oh, thank you. That's yeah, that's
1: it. really good. Yeah. So, um, so when I when I think about you taught me that. You know, children can be truly abandoned. And as an adult, I cannot be abandoned, but I can feel abandoned. And tying that into anxiety, tying that into understanding the lack of spirituality, the lack of acceptance. Can you put those together and speak into that?
0: Yeah, I came up with this uh, at an adult children of alcoholics meeting back in the 80s. Mm. And uh, somebody raised their hand and said, John, could you talk about abandonment? And I said, uh, so why do you want me to talk about that? And she said, because I feel abandoned all the time. Right. And and it just sort of popped out of my mouth. And I said, well, we can talk about it. But let me say this. Adults can't be abandoned. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Oh, the audience just went crazy thinking, John, what are you saying? Yeah. And then I said, "No, wait a minute. Let me finish. Adults can feel abandoned
2: mm-hmm.
0: a lot and all the time. But no adult has ever been lost at the mall. That's good. And has to yeah. go to the security guard <laughs> and say, find my mommy. Right, right. You get, you get your car keys, you get in your car, and then you go see your mom. Right, you right, know. yeah but we can feel it. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And one of the things I absolutely, I just said to a client yesterday, I've been saying it for 35 years, that abandonment, having been abandoned, Mm -hmm. is one of the core foundation in which all this other trauma and fear and stuff springs Mm -hmm. out of, that it's gonna happen again. right? So I'm going to twist myself into a pretzel
1: right.
0: to make sure I don't feel that feeling again. Yeah. And then, sadly, one of the reasons why abandonment is so hard to work with is most people don't believe they were abandoned.
1: That's a good point. That's really most true. don't. Yeah, that's true.
0: They'll say, oh, no, no, I wasn't abandoned. I mean, my mom and dad were at the house. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, I would say things like, um, so picture yourself in the crib. You're in extreme discomfort. Your mom and dad are really good, but your dad is out playing catch with the older brother. Mm -hmm. Mom is talking on the phone and cooking dinner. Mm -hmm. And you're crying in your crib, For three whole minutes. Right. But in the crib, that feels like three whole hours. Right. When your girlfriend, boyfriend, lover, husband, or wife leaves you, Mm -hmm. you're back in the crib. Right. 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 Yeah. Because now three days that they haven't called. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Three days.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I haven't slept. I haven't Mm -hmm. eaten. Mm -hmm. Right, because Mm -hmm. you don't want that feeling of abandonment to emerge again. But it happens so many times. And then the third caveat is the only person that can abandon an adult is yourself. That's right. Which I did on a regular basis. Yes. And then would project that onto these people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's abandon so,
0: myself all the time.
1: Yeah, it's so profound because the idea of the self-abandonment, meaning that I'm going to go into behavior, I'm going to go into codependency, I'm going to go into per- being performative, I'm going to do something, no regard for self, to do something for you so you won't abandon me. Right, right. All right, yeah, and the cycle that we get lost. And so there's no power. If I'm not connected to myself, right, then I'm living on the outside. And my day is dependent on what you do.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. My life, my day, everything depends on you.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 And the difficulty, of, and that's why I think so many people go into a codependency, and it doesn't always look the way we think it's going to. It's not just the, the Melody baby type expressed Codependency. There's so much more to
0: it. Yeah. Well, as people said in the early days, be a melody and melody people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, bottom line is uh, uh, codependency can be terminal.
1: Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Um,
0: that you you lose yourself. You lose mm-hmm. your soul. Um, you lose your purpose Mm -hmm. if you're not always helping somebody, Yes. you know, and and eventually that codependency. I remember one time, Kim, at the Men's Center, this guy who had 36 years in AA, and he was like, you know, in town, he was
1: Mr. AA. Yes, I know that guy, in theory. (laughs) (laughs) He's in Charlotte, too. That's why I talk about that guy. Yes. everybody, everybody knows, knows that guy. Knows yes, yes.
0: So somehow or another, he attended a codependence anonymous meeting. At mm-hmm. He's just checking it out. He mm-hmm. heard about it. He thought it was kind of ridiculous. Yeah. It wasn't really a 12-step program.
1: Yeah.
0: And we had about 12, 15 people in the meeting. And pretty much everybody shared. And finally it came time to him, he said, listen, stopping drinking compared to this
2: mm-hmm.
0: is a cakewalk.
1: That's that's well said in the truth.
0: It's a cakewalk. Yeah. yeah. It's a it's a walk around the park.
1: Yeah.
0: He said, but this that you guys are talking about and sharing, mm-hmm. oh my God.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: How how does a guy like me,
1: this old, deal with that? Because y'all are
0: talking about my life.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. No, that's so insightful. And you know, there are many in the other in our field that believe codependency is the basis, the primary for all addiction. That it starts there, and that somehow in the process we have to go back. You know, and thanks to Pete Walker, we we now have the term fawning. That you know, I'm going to do something. For you as a child to avoid conflict to please you so I can feel safe that left untreated becomes a codependency and because of that it's been there so long we don't even realize it's all part of the fabric of dysfunction. Yeah,
0: And yeah. see, to me, um, abandonment is the foundation for which codependency, alcoholism, yes, yeah. all spring yes. out like branches on a tree. Right, right. But you don't really become a flaming codependent unless you've been abandoned. Yes. And you'll do anything including giving yourself entirely Mm -hmm. away so that somebody won't abandon
1: you. Yeah, well said. And that abandonment as a child doesn't have to be being left at Harris Teeter. That's right. right? It is not that. It's it's having a need and being unseen. It is... By watching your family dynamics, absorbing that someone else's needs mean more than you, or that you thinking because mom's in bed depressed that you have to go do your homework so she can get out of bed. That you children have childlike narcissism. We will believe yeah. that daddy drinks too much because of us.
0: Yeah, yep. yeah.
1: Right? Yep. That's abandonment.
0: Yeah, that's a total abandonment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's sitting in the living room. Mm-hmm. He's already had four martinis. Yeah. And I come in and say, would you hold me? Mm. I was go to bed.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: That's true. abandonment.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's abandonment.
1: Yeah. Um, and the codependency it, is a lonely disease. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. And the sad part, I'm gonna give you the sad part of it, is in the 80s, when Codependence Anonymous really sprang up, here in Austin, uh, we probably had 30, 40 meetings going on codependence. Wow. wow. Um, in the 80s. Right. And then by the 90s, that mm. gets cut down to mm-hmm. 12, 15 meetings. Mm. And by the 2000s, now it's a joke on sitcoms. Yeah, true. And there might be, today, there might be three meetings in this metropolitan area mm-hmm. for codependence. Code yeah. Yeah, it's true. The media and publishing uh, says it's been done. You know you're a codependent. Now get over it mm. and move on. Wow. And don't, John, for God's sake, don't send me a book uh, uh, to publish uh, by you on co- in any way to do with codependency
2: mm.
0: uh, or men's work. <laughs> Wow! Because we've published these books, They're, they've sifted through the culture. Right. Uh,
1: now let's be done. Wow. Well, wow. and the sadness of that—that—that's the core of so many people's pain. But it's not sellable, or it's not recognized because it's within them too, and so they can't see that. Yeah. And so, you know, and in, in part of you know, with me rewriting the twelve steps for codependency, and all I am working on, you know, knowing, learning that boundaries and limits are a huge part of a codependent or anyone's recovery. Yep. And so, you gave me an understanding of boundaries years ago, and you told me a boundary that is not enforced is not a boundary; it's just an idea. Yeah.
0: Yep. Good. Good job. Good job.
1: Yeah. So yeah. Can you can you elaborate a little bit more on that about that and the difference between a boundary and between boundary and a limit?
0: Yeah, um, I say a boundary that can't be defended is not a boundary. It's just new age psychological recovery words.
1: Right, that's great.
0: People will say, "I set a boundary with my mother all the time." Yeah, I go, "What happens?" And I and they'll say, "She ignores it." And <laughs> you know, I it wasn't a boundary. You right. not real boundary. That's right. And people would say, well, well, how do you do that? And I go, There's a thousand ways to defend your boundary.
2: Mm.
0: So a boundary is this is how close you can come to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But in, in in the books on boundaries, somehow or another, and this is this is another one of those things: what are boundaries? Oh, and what are limits? Oh, and they're not the same. That's right. So boundary is this is how close you can come to me spiritually, emotionally, physically, sexually, mm-hmm. financially. Mm-hmm. The limit is how far I'll go along with you. Wow, that's good. And then you fill in the blank mm-hmm. as to what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, I got this... Uh, this distinction about this two, three decades ago, a woman called me up and said, John, I'm so angry at my son, I could kill him. I said, well, tell me what's happened. She said, I told, he's an alcoholic and a drug addict. She said, I, I told him I would put him through the two best treatment centers in the country. and If that didn't do it, that was it. Right. And I said, okay, so how did that go and why are you so mad at it? He said, because I put him through three. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And I I got it right then. I said, so you're angry at him. You don't know what your limits really were. Mm -hmm. But you wanted him to know That's right. That's good. That's good. And and this is this is kind of a truism. If you go past my limits, I'm gonna be angry at you. Right. Thing. right um and that's what comes with that so she she puts her anger towards her son because she didn't know how to set proper limits yeah and again follow up with behavior right um and again they're 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 overlapping and similar mm-hmm. also very different
1: yeah too. yeah and it also just puts light on that Codependency doesn't mean to be, but when you are active in your codependency, it is a dishonest relationship. Yeah. Because you won't tell me what bothers you. You right. won't give me a true answer. Right. And right? that it, it becomes it's a form of manipulation.
2: Right. Right.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Oh so how I got to the limit thing too after that was I hadn't seen or talked to my dad for ten years uh, mm. due to the alcoholism and stuff. And so finally, he'd, he'd stopped drinking. He, he wasn't in recovery, but he dry drunk. Mm. But I thought, I've got enough recovery and enough therapy and enough sense of self and strength. I, I'm going to go visit him.
2: Mm.
0: But but before I went, I thought to myself, I asked myself the question, how long, John, do you think you could be with your dad before it mm. got- Dysfunction. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thought, I bet I, knowing my dad, but also knowing me, I think I can do two hours. Hmm. That's my
1: limit. Right. That's right.
0: And so I drove over there. It's a two-hour drive, and we sat and we talked for the first time in 10 years. Wow. And then I looked at my pocket watch, and it had been two hours. hmm and, and I said, well, Pop, I, I'm, I'm going to go. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going back home. <laughs> and he said, why are you doing that? Why don't you spend the night? I said, no, no, no. Yeah. I said, I appreciate it, but I'm going to head on back home. He said, was it something I said? I said, mm. no, something we didn't say. Mm. And I said, uh, we had a pretty good visit, don't you think? He said, yeah, that's why I want you to stay. And I said, well, I got to go. I got to yeah. go. And I made about four or five trips that way.
2: Hmm.
0: End of two hours, no matter how good it was going,
2: mm-hmm.
0: my limit.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is beautiful. Most people,
0: most people, especially on the holidays, they stay with their family way beyond what they
1: oh, have limits. Right. All right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm 26 years sober and been in the peer community for a lot of that time. And I'm at three hours with my family max. Uh-huh. And I'm really okay with that. It works uh-huh. well for all of us. Uh-huh. And even if it didn't work well for them, it works well for me. That's right.
0: That's you know. right. Now, Kim, that's that's the thing about uh, one of the things about codependency and and abandonment and, and this rage stuff. Um. The, the, the language that I came up with that is centered around love, compassion, and self-care
2: mm-hmm.
0: is the phrase that I ask myself many times a day um, is the phrase or the question, does this work for me? Wow, that's so good.
1: Does this work for me?
0: Does this work for me?
1: Yeah.
0: And if it- the answer is, no, it doesn't work for me to go home mm. this Christmas. Mm. Then you don't go. That's right. See? Yeah. Because if it doesn't work for you mm-hmm. and you go, mm-hmm. you won't really be there.
1: That's right. And and the extra work after that, right? You know, the month absolutely. it takes to come back to being self, right? The trauma yeah. response we go into. What, we call it, what would be called an emotional hangover. That's right. Very much emotional hangover. Yeah. And, I, and so... So if anyone's listening and you just heard John's statement and that's really hard to do or certain situations impossible to do, then then you are worthy of doing the effort around that. And whether you want to contact John to do one on one work with him or many intensive with work him
2: with
1: or with, with me, like mm-hmm. whatever it is that being able to say, does it work for me? That should not be such a profound statement, but it is. It It really is. Yeah. People
0: will say, well, that sounds kind of selfish. Yeah. I go, no, it's kind of selfish. If I go home for Christmas and I stand over in a corner and somebody walks over to me and says, are you all right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a lie. Right. Manipulation. Right. Well, it looks like you're not quite really here. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's selfish behavior. Right, that's right. To go someplace where where people or family or community wants you to be,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but you're only one foot in and one foot out. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most selfish things I can think of.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and what you just said, people need to be reminded of that regularly. Yeah. Yeah, I I wish we could take the word selfish out of vocabulary. We don't use it correctly. Yeah, we just don't use it correctly. We think that anything about self is selfish. And so there are people who don't think that way, and they benefit from that. People who teach Uh you that selfish, to think about self, they are benefiting from you believing that selfishness involves any sense of self.
2: Right.
1: All right, and so I love what you just said. It's so awesome. Don, I'm going to throw you in the hot seat. I know you're a top dog there, but I'm going to throw you in the hot seat. And ask you a few questions. Whatever comes to mind first is your answer, right? Remember, you're the one who taught me that. So <laughs> here we go. All right. When you hear, hear the word vulnerable, what comes to mind?
0: Openness, hmm. uh, fear, um, intimacy,
2: hmm.
0: connection, fear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fear, definitely, right? So good. I love it. Powerful words. What is your favorite movie?
0: Um, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou?
1: That's great. I watched
0: it like maybe five times.
1: What's your favorite line in that movie?
0: Uh, (laughs) George Clooney. (laughs) You've seen the movie, I guess. Yeah, it's been a while, but yeah. Yeah. So, George uh, Clooney's character is the quintessential vainest man on the planet. Right. So, he has to have a special hair treatment for his hair. Right, of course. He only only uses one kind. Uh But he says it like four or five times in the movie. Like if somebody startles him and wakes him up because they got to run for something. First thing he (laughs) says... thing he always says is, "My hair." <laughs> <laughs> it just cracked me up. Yeah, that's great. I love it. It's he, cute. He would wear a hair hairnet. You know, and right? Like, yeah, the laws come in, and we we possibly are going to go to prison. But my first concern so
1: is his hair. Is my hair? <laughs> 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 that's adorable. All right, what is beside your nightstand? What's on what your is nightstand?
2: What? what
0: is on your nightstand? Uh, a novel hmm. that um, I can't even think of the name of right now. I wasn't expecting that one.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, I'm reading, just generally speaking, I'm reading more... Uh, Literary novels and poetry than I am psychology and self-help. Yeah. So that's usually
1: what's at my Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. All right. What surprises people the most about you?
0: Because I was on the road sometimes as much as 200 days a year Mm. for 28 years. People, when I'm speaking in public, um, I'm pretty gregarious, I hope humorous, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then when I get off the stage and they say, oh, wow, man, that was really, really good. We'd like to take you to dinner. And I go, no, thank you. They go, why? And I go, Listen, I'm so introverted. Right. Yeah. You just, no, I can't. Yeah. Three people are a party. (laughs) And I can't do parties. And yet on, uh, on the stage. Oh, absolutely. You know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and, and so, you know, the, the other one, which is really weird and it's kind of vain too, I guess, is, um, when you write a lot of books, like I have, mm-hmm. most people, and this is true of all authors, not just me, uh, most people think you're wealthy. Oh, yeah. 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 And 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 it's just not the case.
1: Not at all. It's a very difficult way to make money.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not John Grissom or mm-hmm. Stephen King. Yeah. You don't. You don't yeah. live off your money. Yeah. You live off of doing therapy, uh-huh. uh, going and giving lectures, workshops. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's that's been one thing. They go, Oh man, all those books you've written, you must mm-hmm. be really, really doing well, Next. <laughs> Listen, I, I gotta pay rent next week. <laughs> <laughs> great.
1: I love that. All right. What surprises you the most about you?
0: That at 70 years old, I feel this is probably the best period of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. And my creativity.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, my faith in relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, Because at 60, that's when I got my divorce Mm. uh, 10 Mm -hmm. years ago, I thought it was over. I thought hmm. all that was over, hmm. you know, that my career's begin to wane, I'm getting older, um, I, I don't think I'll, I may not be in, ever in a relationship again, and that's okay, hmm. Right. but to find myself writing, uh, resting, taking care of myself, and in pr- pretty damn good health.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so that's all surprised.
1: Yeah, that's all.
0: awesome. See, the baby boomers, most of us, uh, are what was called duck and cover kids. You know that term?
1: <laughs> no, but I like it.
0: Yeah, duck and cover. Uh, uh, baby boomers were taught to <laughs> get under our desks in a nuclear missile crisis. <laughs> Great. It's a true story.
1: Great. That's brilliant.
0: And, and all baby boomers have to did it to some degree, depending yeah. on who. Right. But would have drills. hmm And they go, duck
1: and cover. <laughs>
0: That's <laughs> adorable. That's adorable. And, all right. And a nuclear missile's going to
1: drop. And then you're going to be fine as long as you're underneath the desk. <laughs> the
0: desk. <laughs> and so a lot of baby boomers, like myself, I never thought I'd reach 30.
1: Yeah. Based on that. That makes sense. And so many other reasons. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Last hot seat question is, if you could give yourself a different name, what would you name yourself? Jack Knight. Jack Knight. That was quick. You've thought about that before.
0: I've thought about it a lot. Yeah. I keep thinking, uh, you know, I've written a couple of novels now, but I keep thinking uh, I'm going to write a um Mystery novel or detective novel. Yeah, that's Jack Knight. And that's going to be his name. Yeah. like Knight. K-N-I-G-H-T. Yeah, I can
1: visualize that. That's great. So one thing I really like about your name is that your middle name is Harold. Yeah. Right? And it's written in the sense of being a Harold, being the messenger.
0: And you know, Kim, I was so embarrassed about that mm. until probably into my 40s hmm. uh, that I would never tell anybody my middle name. Huh. Because the truth is, my mom and dad were not very literate, mm-hmm. so they meant to put H A R O L D. I didn't know that, John. That's fascinating. And so, because it was H E R A L D, right? The Herald Angels. I didn't want anybody to uh. know that my parents mm. that middle name.
2: Down, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and then somewhere in my 40s, people who did learn about it said, John, that's a really beautiful middle name. Bro. It is. And I finally, mm. you know, now, over the last 10 years, I signed things, John Harold Lee. Oh,
1: that's great.
0: But yeah. my real name, to close, mm. Johnny.
1: Johnny. Johnny. Okay.
0: Harold Yeah. Yeah. But I never thought I looked like a Johnny. <laughs>
1: right what's going on john well johnny harold lee you uh are amazing thank you for being a part of this i'm just gonna ask everybody to to um find you, you She tell them your website real quick or any other way they can get in touch with you any instagram handle whatever i love for my people my people who are listening the audience here to tap into your wealth of knowledge
0: Johnleebooks.com is the website mm-hmm all my books and audio stuff is on Amazon and, uh, you know, Walg- Walmart and places. Yeah. So they're easy yeah. to find.
2: Yeah. You won't
0: find them in a bookstore much anymore, but yeah, um, but JohnLeeBooks.com And, Kim, I can't thank you enough. This was such a relaxing mm. conversation, and yeah. I really appreciate you having me and telling me about the work that you've been doing on yourself yeah. Um, and I want you to, when you have time, if you would, send me the your modification of the twelve. Oh, absolutely. Coach, I'd really like to see that. Yeah,
1: I would love to that. I'd be honored for you to to look at that and get some insight from you. Thank you, John. I appreciate and that. Thank offer.
0: you very, very much for having me. And yeah, you know, when you get in the mindset or mood to do it again, let me know.
1: Absolutely, I will. Thank you, John. To all of y'all, I'm sure you heard something today from my mentor, John Harold Lee, that flipped your lid. I know you also heard something that helped you reconnect to who you really are. We'll see y'all next time.
2: Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram
0: at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit
1: com. Remember, No matter what, treat yourself well today.